Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 34th episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. Julien Offray de la Maîtrie doesn't hold as dominant a place in the history of modern philosophy as Descartes, Hobbes, or Leibniz. Nonetheless, he's a leading materialist and physician of the French Enlightenment, who writes L'homme machine, or Man the Machine, and a number of other highly polemical, although clandestine, works. He seeks to explain the fabric of the human body and mind in materialistic terms, and to show that thought imagination, and the use of reason are ultimately dependent on the changes in organic matter in the brain. It's striking how coherent and consistent La Maitre's views are in the philosophical works he's left us. He publishes six of these works, Man the Machine, Man as Plant, Anti-Seneca, Treatise on the Soul, the system of Epicurus and preliminary discourse over just three years between 1748 and 1750. He publishes many other polemical, literary, and medical works. Many commentators have seen fit to focus narrowly on Man the Machine, as if the most celebrated and provocative of his works summed up the essence of his thought. But as we shall see in this podcast, the other works I just mentioned, as well as polemical and medical works that have not yet been translated into English, are just as important for an understanding of Lemaitre's views. L'homme machine is a bestseller during the Enlightenment. It attacks Descartes and Leibniz, directly challenges the authority of the church, denies there's any purpose in nature, and mocks men as being little more than vertically crawling machines. It is, in some respects, the culmination of a rich tradition in French thought, the tradition of the machine man, 
This clockwork naturalist tradition articulates a new synthesis of views on the mechanical functions of humans, drawing on a wide range of sources, from pre-Socratics to Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, medieval and Renaissance natural philosophy, as well as the more recent revolution in anatomical knowledge. Descartes, and also Hobbes during his Paris exile, can be found at one end of this French tradition, with Leibniz in the middle and Le Maitrie and Dolbach towards the end. Descartes advocates the contemporary mechanical view, but in order to preserve the role of the ancient Christian soul, he strikes the uncomfortable compromise of philosophical dualism. While Descartes affirms that man's material body is joined to an immaterial soul, he nevertheless feels compelled to identify the soul's specific material location in the body, the pineal gland. This compromise is exposed to ridicule by Lemaitrie, and it's perhaps inevitable that this compromise should fall apart in due course. Leibniz brings about a synthesis of several contradictory views by spiritualizing matter, by portraying a universe ultimately composed of metaphysical building blocks, which he calls monads. Leibniz, the great conciliator, thus reaffirms the position of the human machine within a spiritual and indeed a Christian context, accepting some of the insights of mechanistic thinking while justifying revealed religion. If the human being is a machine, according to Leibniz, then that is by God's deliberate, although enigmatic, design. This position is also emphatically rejected by La Maitrie. Remember Lucretius back in ancient Rome. He's written a rich, lyrical poem evoking a purely material universe. In a sort of 18th century echo of Lucretius, La Maitrie lyrically portrays humans as subordinate to nature in a universe where God might or might not exist. In so doing, he couches his philosophical arguments in rich imagery and language. La Maitrie has been exposed to Lucretius through his studies in Leiden under the iatromechanist Hermann Burhave. Significantly, La Maitrie attributes to Lucretius the view which dominates his own work, namely that nothing can touch and be touched if it's not body. At one fell swoop, this rules out an immaterial soul. But this is not to suggest that Le Maitrie is a lyrical atomist, a latter-day Lucretian, and nothing more. On the contrary, he develops an original synthesis of anatomy and philosophy based on his own observations and experiments as a practicing physician. He places the conception of the human machine within a broader materialist conception of nature and grounds it in his physician's practice. Drawing in some respects on Lucretius and in others on Spinoza, La Maitrie characterizes the human being as no more than matter in motion. However, La Maitrie shares neither Spinoza's faith in the geometric method nor his predilection for a pantheistic god.
La Maitrie describes nature lyrically as a powerful, idealized, feminized abstraction, as a secular goddess. Nature, he says, is deprived of knowledge and feeling and makes silk like the bourgeois gentilhomme makes prose without knowing that she is doing it. She is as blind when she gives life as innocent when she destroys it. Well, for La Maitrie, the organization of nature is very hard to penetrate. The path to understanding nature is overgrown with thorns and obstacles. The way to acquire knowledge of nature is by means of experiment and observation. Physicians, like La Maitrie, are more competent to interpret the labyrinth of man than a priori philosophers. The evidence of nature is to be preferred to the traditions of divine revelation, since experience alone can justify faith. And nature provides the source of true morality and politics, which places it in direct contradiction with revelation and the false morality professed by the Church. This exaltation of nature presents problems. La Maitrie seems at times to justify criminal actions since he considers them inevitable given the effect that nature, circumstances, and emotions of bodily matter can have on the criminal. Although La Maitrie attributes to nature a blind, impenetrable, and arbitrary character, although he sees the human being as a complex labyrinth, he seeks to interpret the human machine by drawing together in a creative new way some of the metaphors I've described in previous podcasts in this series on the human machine. La Maitrie, the physician, believes that the nature of man can be understood through the study of anatomy rather than of speculative philosophy or theology. Like the anatomists Vesalius, who was part of the canon of 18th century anatomical studies, and perhaps even Harvey, to whom he refers on several occasions. Remember that Descartes juggles with the immateriality of the human soul as well as a purely material, mechanical body to which the soul is joined. Indeed, Descartes is forced into this position since he seeks to establish the fundamental difference between humans endowed with body and soul and other animals that are no more than automata. La Maitrie, for his part, detects no such fundamental difference between humans and other animals. Both are sentient, intelligent machines, with the difference that man has acquired the use of language. From this materialist perspective, La Maitrie thus rejects the dualism of Descartes, maintaining instead that the soul is composed of matter and subject to the effects of diet, physical states, etc., and has no existence separate from the body. La Maitrie takes up the familiar image of man as a clock, with the difference that the clockmaker isn't God, but a physical substance, chyle, containing a motive principle. Finally, for La Maitrie, the fact that the human being is a collocation of organized matter doesn't imply that there is any divine clockmaker who has organized that matter. There is apparently no God to have given purpose and direction to creation. Despite the clever constructions of nature, there's a random character to the universe. The divine, for La Maitrie as for Lucretius, is simply out of the picture. Well, what we have here is a series of incomplete paradoxical metaphors. The microcosm, 
without the macrocosm, the clock without the clockmaker, and the human being as the sum of well-organized machine-like parts in a universe lacking any particular design, governed by a secular goddess called nature, who is at once blind, arbitrary, and marvelous. The glue holding these disparate views together is La Maitrise materialism. At the same time as he breaks with philosophical dualism and evokes the secular goddess of nature, La Maitrise is attracted to deism, a popular 18th century philosophical belief in God, which makes no reference to faith, revelation, or established religion. It's hard to assert that he's an atheist, closer to the mark is Friedrich Lange, the historian of materialism, who says, The existence of a supreme being, La Maitrie will not doubt. All probability speaks for it. But this existence no more proves the necessity of worship than any other existence. It is a theoretical truth without any use in practice, and, as it has been shown by innumerable examples that religion does not bring morality with it, so we may conclude that even atheism does not exclude it. If anything, La Maitrise deism more closely resembles our agnosticism nowadays. He simply feels unable to form an opinion of God one way or another. Even so, he urges the development of atheism and materialism in order to free society of its prejudices, fanaticism, and sectarian violence. Such positions help to explain why publication of La Machine, or Man the Machine, send La Maitrie into exile in Holland, and why he has to seek the protection and patronage of Frederick II of Prussia. It should come as no surprise that La Maitrie is subjected to the concerted attacks of the French medical profession, the Catholic Church, and the crown of France itself, since his highly polemical works consist of direct attacks on these institutions. La Maitrie's free thinking and materialism aren't the only danger for these ancien régime institutions. More provocative still is his chatty, colorful, and sarcastic style, which helps him acquire best-seller status at a time when ponderous conventional philosophers have a narrower readership. In his own day, he has few defenders apart from King Frederick II. Diderot dismisses him as dissolute, insolent, a buffoon and flatterer, made for life in court and the favors of the powerful. After falling into virtual oblivion, La Maitrie is reassessed in the mid-19th century by the historian of materialism Friedrich Lange, for whom he is an unsung precursor of 18th and 19th century materialism whose views are highly original. More recent appraisals of La Maitrie note that he's a precursor of modern physiology, experimental materialism, biology, and neuropsychiatry. He's been singled out for having removed study of the brain from the narrow confines of Cartesianism, that is the philosophy of René Descartes, and as a pioneer who anticipates the development of artificial intelligence.
Julien Offray de la Maitrie is born on Christmas Day 1709 in Saint-Malo, France, into a family of minor provincial nobility. Wishing to pursue his medical studies as a young man, he can't afford the exorbitant fees charged in Paris, and therefore chooses to study in Reims instead. He seems to feel himself an outsider from an early age, not just a provincial without much money, but also an embittered wanderer dedicated to ideals, always ready to show up the faults of people around him, whether they be members of his family, writers of his own day, theologians, women, or physicians. His studies of medicine seem to coincide with disenchantment with religion. Medicine is practical and grounded in observation and experiment, whereas theology is shamelessly speculative. He writes that physicians who rightly understand their profession can penetrate further into the labyrinth of the human being than theologians. He writes, Physicians have explored and thrown light on the labyrinth of man. They alone have revealed the springs hidden under coverings which keep so many marvels from our gaze. They alone, calmly contemplating our soul, have it a thousand times unawares in its misery and its grandeur without either despising it in one state or admiring it in the other. He contrasts this approach to the shameless and ridiculous speculations of theologians who have been deflected by obscure studies that have led them into a thousand prejudices and, in a word, fanaticism, which adds to their ignorance of the mechanism of our bodies. La Maitrie thus proclaims that of all natural philosophers, physicians are the ones most suited to interpret the human being. This confidence in medicine is not to last. He also becomes disenchanted with the practice of medicine in France, which suffers from the sharp division between physicians and surgeons in terms of intellectual perspectives and corporate interests. La Maitrie is appalled by the rift between Paris physicians on the one hand and the surgeons on the other, who ground their judgments in detailed physiological knowledge, experience at the operating table, a respect for scientific knowledge, and a disdain for theorizing. This rift recalls the situation facing Vesalius more than two centuries earlier. La Maitrie exposes his views in a number of serious medical works on vertigo, venereal disease, asthma, and dysentery, but also in biting satires from Lettres à Monsieur Astruc in 1737 through De Orbis Veneris in 1736, Saint-Cosme Vengé the following year, La Politique du Médecin de Machiavel in 1746, La Faculté Vengé the following year, Anti-Machiavelisme the year after that, and finally Ouvrage de Pénélope in 1748-1750. In these 1,600 pages of satire, La Maitrie launches broadsides at the medical profession of France, 
subjects the practice of medicine to biting sarcasm, accuses prominent physicians of being charlatans more interested in professional fees and rubbing shoulders with the high and mighty than in the health of their patients, vaunts the superiority of surgery to medicine, since it's based on observation, experiment, and detailed knowledge of anatomy, and also advocates greater specialization among physicians as well as experimental research. To keep people reading his anonymous polemics, La Maîtrise sometimes takes on pen names and pretends to attack his own previous publications. Honestly, I guess that's what you had to do if you wanted to go against the grain during the Enlightenment. The general theme of these works is consistent. These polemical works are not only entertaining and controversial, they tend to support the idea of reforming medical education in France as well as the practice of medicine itself. Needless to say, they make their author, La Maîtrie, a lot of enemies. It's interesting to note here that two formative experiences set La Maîtrie on the path of la machine, that is, man the machine. The first is the experience of studying under Burhava in 1733-4. He's also exposed in Leiden to the works of Albrecht von Haller. The second is when La Maîtrie is struck by severe fever in 1744 at the siege of Fribourg, where he's serving as army surgeon. And this experience of severe fever convinces him of the effect that organic changes in the brain have on psychic phenomena, on sensation. The influence of his mentor Burhava is all-important, and Le Maitri translates some of his works into French. According to Wellman, Burhava's medical theory provided the foundation of his own discussion of the philosophy of nature. In fact, La Maitri's critical assessment of Burhava's medicine enabled him to develop fundamental perspectives from which he later investigated philosophical questions. Now, a significant aspect of Burhava's medicine is his work at bringing about a reconciliation between iatrochemists and iatromechanists. In addition, La Maîtrie is impressed by his practice of medicine, his concern for public health, and his understanding of the nature of disease. As to the second formative experience, namely the severe fever from which he suffers in 1744, La Maîtrie follows the stages of his illness with a dispassionate medical interest. Frederick II later writes, referring to La Maîtrie's interest in mechanical conceptions of nature, that, I quote, filled with these ideas, during his convalescence, he carried the torch of his experience into the shadows of metaphysics. He sought to explain, having recourse to anatomy, the loosening of the understanding, and he only saw the effects of mechanics where others had imagined the workings of some essence superior to matter. And I'll just throw in a word here. Imagine Frederick II is a king, the king of Prussia, and he leads a court of exiled intellectuals from all over Europe during the Enlightenment. 
in 1745, La Maitrie is forced to leave Paris after publishing the Treatise on the Soul, a book that is burned by the public hangman, although La Maitrie revises it and publishes it abroad several years later. Returning to the relative tolerance of Holland, La Maitrie publishes La Machine, or Man the Machine, in 1747, followed by Anti-Seneca, a discourse on happiness. However, he then has to leave Holland in 1748 for the official protection of Frederick II in Berlin, where he's made court reader and is named to the Academy of Science. He dies in 1751, apparently from food poisoning, which many of his bitter enemies consider all too fitting for someone who claimed to have superior knowledge of the medical profession. Much of what La Maitrie says of mechanical functions of the body seems commonplace today. But in the 18th century, La Maitrie's materialism is novel, even scandalous. His attacks on Christian revelation, Descartes, and the tradition of dualism are certainly a threat to the older worldview, according to which man has a dominant place in a closed, perfect, harmonious, earth-centered universe created by God. For many an 18th century observer, it's hard to conceive of a universe without God the Creator and humans in His image, and a moral hierarchy of good and evil without human claims to mastery over nature, without humans in the image of God, a universe without a reason behind the admirable clock-like workings of nature. Nowhere is the challenging character of La Maitrie's philosophy more apparent than in his view that the mere fact of order in nature implies no master design whatever, no divine clockmaker behind it all. Like his God-fearing predecessors, he continues to see the natural order in allegorical terms, but he detects a depersonalized power operating in the universe and sees no use for God. Ears are mathematically constructed and equally serve one single purpose, which is hearing. In the animal kingdom, the same purpose is achieved in an infinite number of ways, although each one is geometrical. Far from constituting proofs of the existence of a creator, such examples serve to show that matter is capable of what La Maitrie calls brilliant productions, and nature is not a worker of limited ability. The ease and pleasure with which she produces millions of men exceed the watchmaker's toil when he creates the most complicated of watches. Her power shines out as clearly in the creation of the meanest insect as in that of the most splendid human. And I'll just remind you what I said earlier, La Maitrie allegorizes nature as a secular goddess, uh, that is, a female divinity. La Maitrie believes that there is some intrinsic, although limited, purpose in the universe. He writes, Nature created us solely to be happy, yes, all, from the worm crawling on the ground 
to the eagle soaring on high. That is why she gave all animals a portion of the law of nature, which is more or less refined, depending on how well conditioned are the organs of each animal which possesses it. Now, as I've mentioned already in this series, the idea of the human machine has already begun to undergo considerable changes by the early 18th century. The discoveries and prestige of natural philosophy, what we now call science, and particularly of anatomy, sometimes under the influence of hermetic ideas, have weakened the attraction of older, more purely spiritual conceptions of man grounded in ancient philosophy and divine revelation. La Maîtrie is well placed to purge the metaphor of the human machine of any religious associations, to make the definitive break with philosophical dualism and spiritualized matter, and to ground the human machine solely in materialism. I'm going to situate the main argument in La Machine, or man the machine in the context of La Maîtrie's views of nature before considering relevant aspects of La Maîtrie's materialism in Man as Plant, Anti-Seneca, Treatise on the Soul, the System of Epicurus, and finally, Preliminary Discourse. Man is a machine, La Maîtrie boldly states, and there is in the whole universe only one diversely modified substance. Our thoughts and actions all depend on how the human machine is variously constructed. Speculative philosophy about the nature of man, while promising exact truth, is based on a priori reasoning and is thus less valid than a posteriori reasoning, based on direct observations of man's organs. La Maîtrie writes, Man is a machine constructed in such a way that it's impossible, first of all, to have a clear idea of it and consequently to define it. That is why all the greatest philosophers' a priori research in which they tried, as it were, to use the wings of the mind have failed. Hence it is only a posteriori, or by trying, as it were, to disentangle the soul from the body's organs that we can not necessarily discover with certainty the true nature of man, but reach the greatest possible degree of probability on the subject. Moreover, La Maîtrie says, betraying a certain corporate pride in the medical profession, that a close study of anatomy, of the structure of man and animals, will provide insights into man's nature. As he says, the different states of the soul are thus always related to those of the body. But in order to demonstrate better the extent of this dependence and its causes, let us use comparative anatomy here. Let us open up the entrails of men and animals. How can we know human nature if we have not been enlightened by an accurate comparison of the structures of men and animals? Not only does La Maîtrie favor the medical profession over speculative philosophy, he also prefers practicing physicians who have acquired a working knowledge of the physics and mechanics of the body. As he says, if we compare two doctors, the best and most trustworthy is always, in my opinion, 
the one who knows the most about the physics or the mechanics of the human body, and who, forgetting the soul and all the worries which this figment of the imagination causes in fools and ignoramuses, concentrates solely on pure naturalism. Indeed, considering that crimes are sometimes committed in moments of passion, and that passions are in turn determined by diet and other causes, La Maîtrise says it would no doubt be preferable if all judges were excellent medical doctors. Only they could distinguish the innocent criminal from the guilty one. And what precisely does the study of anatomy teach us? La machine, or man the machine, is clear about this point. A study of anatomy demonstrates that the human body winds itself up and is a living picture of perpetual motion, that the way we think and behave directly depends on how our bodily machine is constructed. Bodily reactions can be likened to the action of springs. For example, the body draws back, struck with terror at the sight of an unexpected precipice. The eyelids blink under the threat of a blow. The pupils contract in bright light to protect the retina and dilate to see objects in the dark. The skin's pores close in winter to keep cold outside of the vessels. The stomach heaves on being irritated by poison. The heart the arteries and the muscles contract during sleep as much as during the waking hours. According to La Maîtrie, such examples show that the body reacts mechanically to stimuli, whether it be sleeping or awake. Thought and feeling are dependent on the spring-like action of movement in the brain, as well as on the material structure of the brain, and are even inherent in that structure. Well, does the organization suffice to explain everything? La Maîtrie writes, once again, yes. Since thoughts clearly develop with the organs, why should the matter which composes them not also be capable of remorse once it's acquired with time the faculty of feeling? But the human being is not just a machine. For la maîtrie, the human being is a clock-like machine. He's not suggesting that man is necessarily as predictable and accurate as a clock. On the contrary, he speaks of the highly changeable, irrational nature of man, of the chaos and the perpetual, rapid succession of our ideas. They pursue each other as one below pushes another. Instead, for la maîtrie, man is like a clock in that every organ functions as a cog or spring, contributing to the orderly movement of the whole. It's in this functional movement 
that we detect both the mechanical nature of the human being and the complexity of that mechanism, since countless cogs and springs operate independently of one another. Lemaitre writes, The human body is a clock, but so huge and cleverly constructed that if the cog which tells the seconds happens to stop, the one which tells the minutes goes on tuning in the same way as the cog for the quarters continues to move, and so do the others, when the first ones are rusty or out of order for some reason and stop working. Lemaitre says that the obstruction of a few vessels is not enough to destroy or halt the main movement of the heart, which is like the mainspring of the machine. On the contrary, he says, the fluids, which have diminished in volume, do not have so far to go and cover the distance all the more quickly, as if carried by a new current, because the strength of the heart has increased due to the resistance it meets with at the extremities of the vessels. In this passage, I would like to note that Lemaitre says the clock of the human body is cleverly constructed although he doesn't thereby imply that there is any designer behind the bodily construction. On the contrary, he maintains that the clockmaker is a physical substance, chyle. Well, what is chyle? The Collins English Dictionary defines it as a milky fluid composed of lymph and emulsified fat globules formed in the small intestine during digestion. In so doing, La Maitrie attributes to an inanimate substance the power to provide order and coherence to the body. La Maitrie writes, The natural oscillation, a property of our machine, possessed by every fiber, and so to say every fibrous element, is like that of a clock, in that it can't always function. It must be renewed as it is depleted, given strength when it languishes, weakened when it is oppressed by too much strength and vigor. That is what constitutes the only true medicine. The body is nothing but a clock, whose clockmaker is new chyle. Moreover, La Maitrie continues, nature's first care, when the chyle comes into the blood, is to stimulate in it a sort of fever, which the chemists, who are obsessed by furnaces, must have taken for a sort of fermentation. This fever produces a greater filtration of the spirits, which then mechanically stimulate the muscles and the heart as if they were sent there on the orders of the will. Well, I'm sure you see how different La Maitrie's use of the clock metaphor is from that of his predecessors. Previously, the clock had been seen in the microcosm-macrocosm perspective of a well-ordered, harmonious universe in which everything and being had its place according to the divine plan, and human beings held the predominant place. Now, the clock image is used to explain the movement and properties of the human body, the physiological functions and mechanisms of particular organs, and the clever construction of the body, which comes about without divine intervention. Well, you may say, Yes, but what about nature, the secular goddess that Lemaitre occasionally uses to explain where we come from? I believe quite simply that this is an allegory which Lemaitre uses for rhetorical purposes. Lemaitre holds that the soul is not detached from and coexistent with the body. On the contrary, the soul is dependent on physiological states, and the operations of the soul can be observed in bodily responses themselves. 
There are cases, according to La Métrie, in which body and soul seem to be detached, whether because of illness or the effects of sleep. People subject to illusions and delirium experience all kinds of passions and conditions depending on their medical state, their diet, whether they're drinking coffee or wine. In addition, the brain possesses muscles for thinking, just as the legs do for walking. Thoughts and feelings are contained in bodily processes. The soul is thus material. Certain operations of the soul, such as judgment, reason, and memory, can be detected in physical effects. La Métrie concludes, The soul is merely a vain term, of which we have no idea, and which a good mind, should use only to refer to that part of us which thinks. Ultimately, La Métrie sees education itself as a mechanism, <laughs> since it consists of sounds and words transmitted from brain to brain. Just imagine how attractive for La Métrie in the early part of the 18th century Enlightenment, the machine model is when he can call education itself a mechanism. In Anti-Seneca, La Métrie attacks the Stoics as being sad, strict, and unyielding. We shall be cheerful, sweet-natured, and indulgent. Then, while inquiring into the foundation of happiness, he advocates the effects of our internal organization on our happiness, as well as education, which, so to speak, bends our soul and modifies our organs, pleasures of the senses, wealth, honors, reputation, etc. But it's when he turns to reprehensible behavior that La Métrie makes the most original statement in his work. He's already stated in other works that man is a machine, subject to the forces of nature on his organization. Now he claims that criminals can hardly be blamed for committing those reprehensible acts which nature obliges them to commit. He writes, criminals have executioners, and the executioners have none. Their hearts are closed to remorse and repentance, and yet they are murderers. Yes, but stipended murderers. The ones are paid and the others are revered, but executioners are authorized and assassins are punished. The public good calls for both and is enough to justify the former and to condemn the latter to death, but to remorse, to which Pufendorf does not seem to condemn those assassins who are forced into it. The law of nature, which is his foundation, should also shelter them from the laws or make men imagine laws more favorable to these poor wretches. Well, this strikes me today as a rather extreme consequence of the idea of the human machine because it seems to remove any responsibility from the shoulders of criminals. The great reformer of justice Cesare Beccaria, who published Of Crimes and Punishments in 1762, provides a more secure foundation for criminal justice by insisting that a punishment be proportionate to the injury to society of the crime itself. As such, Beccaria focuses on whether the death penalty is really useful and necessary for the security and good order of society, and what are the best ways of preventing crimes in the first place. So what is the overall significance of La Métrie now three centuries later? We're faced with an enigmatic, sarcastic, 
and dissolute wanderer, making bold, although largely anonymous, attacks on the medical, philosophical, and theological conventions of his day, someone with a passionate desire to reform medical and educational institutions, take up the mission of public health, and bring about greater happiness and justice in society. La Maitrie is an inveterate, rather lonely joker who remains hostile to power elites, although he's finally granted asylum and status at the court of King Frederick II. La Maitrie ends up saying, maybe man is thrown by chance on a point of Earth's surface without anyone being able to say how or why, but simply that he has to live and die like mushrooms which appear from one day to the next, or flowers which grow beside ditches and cover walls. We shouldn't lose ourselves in infinity. We weren't made to have the slightest idea, and we are absolutely incapable of tracing things back to their origin. For la maîtrie, in the end, it's enough to know that organized matter is endowed with a motive principle, which alone distinguishes it from unorganized matter. And a little aside here, I remember having a conversation with the Nobel Prize winner Sir John Sulston several years ago, uh, who was the uh, head of the British part of the Human Genome Project, and I asked him to what extent humans are machines, because I pointed out to him that there have been so many different interpretations of machines, from mechanical machines to biological machines to Leibniz's spiritual machines to virtual machines. And Sir John Silston said to me, a machine is something that is organized. I'll leave that with you as the final thought in this podcast. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net. And evidencia, the Latin word for evidence, a very big part of the scientific revolution, evidencia is spelled with the letter N as in November. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Trekker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette with me accompanying her on the piano. Now here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Trekker, accompanied by Pascal Demel on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021. George Toombs, all rights reserved. Mm -hmm.